0: Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we've already this morning heard a lot about Jesus reigning. We've said that we believe in a resurrection. Sometimes we don't really understand exactly what's going on or we need reminders. We've heard about it a long time ago. Help our understanding here this morning. And beyond our understanding, may it prompt us to action because we understand this is not a fairy tale. This isn't fanciful thinking. This is not something that was made up. This is something from Your Word that tells us what's happening in the future. For those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's exciting. But for those who don't, it's something that's a horror. And we don't want to see anybody go through the horrors that are described. We want them to be involved in that first resurrection that we're going to hear about. So help our understanding now and help us to honor you in how we get there. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go together in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the first six verses of Revelation chapter 20. On Sunday mornings, we're looking at really kind of the end of, of the end we're looking at what's going to happen after the lord jesus returns and we're seeing some of the things here now and then on sunday evenings we're backtracking a little bit and we're bringing ourselves to this point point. and our attempt is going to be to try to finish the study of revelation that we began some time ago let's read together these first six verses i'll read out loud if you follow along The Apostle John, obviously, writing here, and he says, "'Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, "'holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit "'and a great chain. "'And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent "'who is the devil and Satan, "'and bound him for a thousand years "'and threw him into the pit.'" and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. The book of Revelation describes seven gruesome years of tribulation that will come to this earth one day. And some people deny it. Some people say that it is a fairy tale. It's fictional it's not really going to happen, or they spiritualize it and say that there's going to be something happening, but not seven years of tribulation. The Bible doesn't trivialize that at all. The climax of those seven years results in a period that we often refer to as the campaign of Armageddon. It's not simply one battle, but it's a campaign of Armageddon. It won't be pleasant, but don't forget, if our theology is right, and I certainly believe that it is, then Jesus will have taken all of the believers home to be with him before this whole mess of this tribulation starts. So we see the order coming something like this. The campaign of Armageddon, which will end the seven years of tribulation, but then backing up a little bit, the next thing on the calendar after this time, often referred to as the church age ends, is the rapture followed by those seven years of tribulation. The rapture, of course, being that time when Jesus takes us to be with him. We meet him in the air, could happen at any moment. It's in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen. Then, seven years of tribulation. Followed by what we refer to as the return of Christ. We see, a, see that in Revelation chapter 19, and we took a look at that several weeks ago. We talk about the second coming of Christ. Oftentimes, that has two Occasions, one of them is the rapture, one of them is the return of Christ. That's all part of the second coming. He comes for his saints, we meet him in the air, then he comes with his saints, and he actually touches down on the planet. That's the return of the Lord Jesus. And then begins a thousand years that we refer to in different terms. The millennial reign is one of those terms. That thousand year reign of Christ here on the earth which will be followed by a great climax, and then the eternal state begins. That's the order that we see things happening. Now, when the dust all settles after the return of Christ, after the tribulation, prior to the millennial reign, when the dust all settles, then what is left here on the planet? After the campaign of Armageddon, all the things that take place in the tribulation? Well here's what's left when the dust settles. The armies of the world will have all been destroyed. Those armies that are described in detail in many places in scripture in great detail in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. According to Revelation 19:20, the beast and the false prophet and Lord willing we're going to be talking about them tonight. We'll see a lot about the beast and the false prophet. They are in league with Satan. They will get their just desserts at that time. They're the first two inhabitants of Gehenna, the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, the final hell. And the distinction of being first is offset by the eternal horror of that place. Well, the dust is settled. What else is left? According to Zechariah chapter 13, two-thirds of Israel will have been pruned away. But also in Ezekiel chapter 13, one third of Israel will come out of their fiery ordeal purged and refined, having believed in Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And as you see here in verse 2 that I just read in Revelation chapter 20, Satan is now out of the way during that millennial time period. He's out of the way for that thousand years. The Lord will have effectively destroyed every hostile force that would challenge his right to rule as Messiah over the earth. In other words, all the bad guys are gone. All of those who have rejected Christ are gone. There are only believers on earth who begin the millennial period. They will stay here and they will enjoy that reign of the Lord Jesus. And the world lived happily ever after, right? Wrong. Not quite. We will see during the millennial period that we don't need any bad guys. We don't need any bad influence. We don't need Satan and the demons to make us sin. We are sinners by nature. We are born that way. Going into the millennium, there are only believers who are there. But the millennium is a long time. We've entered into the description here of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. It will be the utopia that many have sought for so long that the artists have had a whole lot of fun in making their pictures and showing us some of the scenes coming out of Isaiah and coming out of other places in Scripture where this utopia, this millennium period is coming from. This is the time we hear of when the wolf will live with the lamb. Those of you that can't see the screen, there's a picture of a sleeping wolf with a lamb curdled up um, right at his bosom. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. Picture of a bear with some big cows. Children will be leading wild animals and playing with cobras and vipers. If you can picture this scene, uh, this is so often pictured when nature is at peace with itself. And some people, again, will say that could never happen. But remember, we're talking about some very supernatural events that are taking place. So even with the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne and countless saints reigning with him, and a pure, refined group of people living on the earth, sin will show itself once again. Again, everyone during the millennium will be loyal to Christ as it begins. But during the thousand years, do you know what they're going to have? you know what they're going to have, those people that are here? They're going to have children. And those children are going to grow up, and they're going to have sin natures, some of those children will follow the ways of the Lord and believe in their heart all the things about the Lord Jesus. The children, though, will all have to choose whether to worship the Lord Jesus or, as we, as is pointed out here, some of them will rebel against Him in their hearts. There will not be a whole lot of overt rebellion then because it will be punished summarily according to what we read in the scriptures. When those who rebel against the Lord Jesus, they will be the people who won't live a long time. They might only live to be 100 or 120 years of age. Otherwise, people are going to be living throughout the millennial period. But there are going to be many people who are going to do both, who are going to worship the Lord Jesus and those who are going to silently rebel against him in their hearts. As I mentioned, there will be a very long lifespan during the millennium. Can you imagine that lifespan, a thousand years? How many people will be born? How many people will be there because people aren't dying unless they overtly rebel against the Lord? The conditions on earth will be perfect. Jesus is ruling, but there will still be some people who are discontented. There are still some who will want their own way and not the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. The teaching before us shows us that God has the answer for the excuses of mankind for sin and for unhappiness. There are people today who say, if only we could have it this way, if only we could get rid of this thing, or if only we had this, everything would be great. We could all be happy. We could all be fulfilled. We could all be satisfied. And Sometimes people will say, if we had a great environment here on earth, then everything would be perfect. It's the environment that causes all of the world's moral problems. If we had a perfect external environment, everything would be okay. No more so than if you painted the outside of your house and counted on that for harmony inside. It's not the external environment that causes unhappiness and pain And sin some would say if only we could get that perfect educational system if only we could be assured that everyone could learn everyone could keep growing educationally well you know as well as I do during the lifetimes of many of us and all of you have seen some of this but many of us have seen this they've changed the educational system they've changed it back they've changed it more the philosophies change all the time Education has proven not to be the answer to bringing about satisfaction in life. So if it's not the environment, if it's not the educational system, how about the political system? We could have the greatest laws in the history of the world. We could have the greatest leaders. How many of you think we have the greatest political leaders right now that are imaginable? I don't see a lot of hands. Actually, I don't see any. But if we had that, then everything would be okay. That's what some people would say. Or let's improve the economy. What about the economy if we could make sure that everyone was above poverty level? If we could make sure that the economy was well-oiled and working all of the time, then we could have that ultimate happiness and satisfaction and joy. Well, we've tried all of that and nothing has worked. We continue to get worse as God told us would happen. During the 1,000-year reign of Christ, everything will be right. Justice and integrity will rule every area of life. After all, Jesus is ruling. There will not be any unfairness during this time. Sin and rebellion, though, are still going to lie smoldering in the hearts of many, not just a few, but of many, we're told. One more time, it will burst into open flame that will take place after the thousand years when Satan is released and he will gather together all of the malcontents for one more attempt to do battle with God Almighty. God's going to provide one more test for mankind to utterly convince us that there's only one remedy, for sin, Only one chance for peace and justice, and it has nothing to do with external or environmental factors. We must have a heart that is right with God from the inside out. We must personally receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. We must depend on him and not on ourselves and not on our systems. To understand what is happening, we really need to understand the millennium. People have always dreamed of a utopia. What would you think of would be your utopia? Think about it for a minute. Use your imagination. What would be the perfect environment that you would be living in, the perfect system of everything? I know when I think of that, I think of, I don't know why, but first thing that comes to mind is food. I think about food, and I think about corn, cherries, chocolate for every meal, tasty cakes. For dessert, you notice that's all C's. I like seafood, corn, cherries, chocolate, cake, chocolate, cherry cake. You put three of them together. That's absolutely fantastic. And without two other C's, without cavities, actually three, cavities, calories, and cholesterol. That's that's the utopia. You don't have any of those, and you can enjoy all the rest of that. That could be a utopia. And then add to that a time when justice and peace would prevail. Someone has put it this way. Poets write about it. Folk singers sing about it. Politicians promise it. Prophets forecast it. And the world cries for it. But nobody ever brings it. Nobody that is until Jesus will bring that literally to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom then the best utopia ever imagined by the most fanciful dreamers will take place on this planet. Everything that was lost in the fall will be regained. Paradise once lost will be regained. Everything will be restored. Now you'll notice that there are six times in the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 20 that we see a time period mentioned. We didn't read verse 7. But if you look at verse 7, it actually continues to mention something that's going to happen. Verse 7 says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And it goes on there and talks about this final battle. You thought I made that up, some of you. That's right there. I just didn't read that far this morning. So we have a situation where six times in seven verses a specific time period is mentioned. It is a thousand years. And in the Latin, that's called millennium. Millianum, the millennium, also known as the thousand-year reign of Christ, also known as the kingdom age, along with the millennium. Those are all interchangeable terms. Now, why do I point that out? I point that out because there are various views of the millennium, some of whom don't believe that the millennium is a thousand-year time period. Now, I believe in taking Scripture literally unless it tells us in one way or another not to take it literally. So looking at your Scripture, looking at Revelation 20, look at verse 2. Satan bound a thousand years, verse 3. The thousand years were ended, verse 4. At the end of the verse, it talks about a thousand years. Verse 5, thousand years were ended. And at the end of verse 6, a thousand years. Do you know how long I believe the millennium is going to be? Do you think that if God wanted us to believe it was any other time period, he wouldn't mention it six times in those few verses? There are various views, as I mentioned, held by very knowledgeable biblical scholars about the millennium. Those who know and love the Lord and have studied this, some of them have given their lives to this study, and they come up with different conclusions. They can't all be right. And I'm sharing with you the conclusion that I've come to, the conclusion that this church has come to, that this church has believed for many, many decades The three views that are most prominent, one is called amillennialism, another is called postmillennialism, and the third one is called premillennialism. Let's start with amillennialism. In a nutshell, it teaches that Christ will come in a real and literal manner. Now, you need to understand that, that all of these views have Christ coming back again. It is with regard to the timing it is with regard to where it is placed in the structure that some people will disagree but all believe that so amillennialism teaches that christ will come in a real and literal manner listen to what reynolds Schauer says here's what the amillennialists believe there will be no literal political kingdom of god on this earth the future kingdom of god is totally spiritual in nature. And so, ah, millennialism, ah, before a word like that means no, no millennium as we see it literally taking place. So the thousand years are not taken literally. The thousand years may be symbolic of this long period of time. The time between when Jesus first came and when he comes again. Obviously, that's been a lot longer than a thousand years. That means the millennium is now, according to that view. We're in it right now. Satan must now be bound and not here on earth. Peace on earth exists in the church, and Satan is bound so he cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I don't see the millennium being right now. I don't see us being in that situation where Satan is no longer present doing anything at all to try to tempt or test or destroy. That's amillennialism. Some wonderful Christians believe amillennialism. Some great scholars believe that. I'm neither of those. I'm not a great Christian and I'm not a great scholar, but I don't believe that. Postmillennialism teaches that Christ doesn't return until the end of the thousand years. The earth will get better and better through the spread of the gospel, and Christ will come to claim his kingdom after the last thousand years, or it could even be a longer period. They're not uh, really agreed on how long that might be. But during some time period when that expires, then Christ will exercise a spiritual reign, not a literal one. So Christ doesn't return until the end of the thousand years. The earth is going to get better and better. Are you seeing that? The earth, in any way, is getting better and better. Uh, If you say, yes, I'm seeing that, then you don't have a TV or access to the Internet or read newspapers uh, or look around at all in the world today. This view was more popular at the beginning of the 20th century. What happened after that? Great Depression, two world wars, numerous other wars, acts of terrorism, they've thrown cold water on the premise that the world is getting better and better. In recent years, there's been a resurgence and not real recent, but in, in my lifetime, a resurgence in such movements as liberation theology, kingdom theology, and theonomy. There are groups who have tried to resurrect this view, but by and large, this is a view that is on life support. The third view, pre Millennialism, and that's what we believe here at Alden Union Church. It holds that Revelation 20 must be interpreted literally. A thousand years or a thousand years. Christ comes before the millennium. There can be no kingdom without the king, no peace without the prince of peace. The saints will reign with Christ. That's a teaching of the Scripture. I'd like for us to look at two key features of the millennium coming out of the text here in Revelation chapter 20. The first one is Satan retired. This is part of the millennium. To understand the millennium, we understand that Satan is going to be retired. I don't know how you feel about forced retirements, but I feel really good about this one. Satan is forced into retirement. We can see through John's eyes an angel. And there are six indications that this angel really meant business. And again, as we look at this, there can be some figurative features to the literalness of what is going on, but the point is clear. The angel meant business and Satan will be taken out of commission. Satan will not be able to escape this incarceration for a thousand years. So six indications the angel meant business. First of all, it says the angel had a key to the bottomless pit. Ladies, I hate to tell you, the bottomless pit is a place it is not your husband or that child who eats a whole lot. We were introduced to the bottomless pit in chapter 9. It's also known as the shaft of the abyss in some of the translations. That word is used nine times in the New Testament, seven times in the book of Revelation, talking about this bottomless pit or the shaft of the abyss. If you look at the Scripture, there is no reason at all not to take this as a literal place. Beings inhabit the bottomless pit. It's a place where the wicked spirit beings are imprisoned. If you were with us on Sunday evenings during our earlier chapters in Revelation, we read about a dark smoke coming from this abyss that blotted out the sun. And scorpion locusts were released from there to torment the souls and the bodies of those who were willfully rejecting the Son of God during the tribulation period. So the angel, we see, has a key to the bottomless pit. The angel also, it says, had a great chain in his hand. Don't ask me to explain the physics of chaining a spirit being. You'll have to think about that on your own, but it tells us, The angel had a great chain in his hand, and the angel seized the dragon according to verse 2. And in case we don't know who this dragon is, John tells us once again, the ancient serpent, a reference back to Genesis chapter 3. That is not a myth the first chapters in Genesis. Many of our students are taught that in colleges and universities, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, even in Christian colleges and universities. It's all mythological. It is not meant to be taken literal. Well, this ancient serpent goes back to Genesis chapter 3 in the middle of reality, a real temptation that took place. Not an allegory, a literal account of the fall of mankind. So this... Dragon, also known as the ancient serpent, also known as the devil, meaning the slanderer, the malicious gossip, the liar, diabolos or diabolical. And then Satan, the accuser, the adversary. Turn back with me to Revelation 12 for just a minute. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Just to make sure we understand who this dragon is, Verse 9 of chapter 12, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And he knows his time is short, and that's one of the reasons why things happen the way they do during that tribulation period. Fourthly, how do we know the angel meant business? The angel bound Satan for a thousand years. This was all part of God's plan. This was known from before the foundations of time. You'll notice, those of you that can see the screen, the reference to Isaiah twenty-four twenty-one: On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth there will be punishment on that day and it will take place with the spirit beings as well as people on earth. The angel binding Satan for a thousand years, part of that that we just read. Fifthly, the angel threw Satan into the bottomless pit. And then sixthly, the angel locked and sealed the bottomless pit. Why? To keep Satan from deceiving the nation's So we're going to have a thousand years without Satan. And that's something that is very, very clear if we take this literally. Why only for a thousand years? Apparently, God had something he wanted to prove. Look at the end of verse 3. After that, he must be released for a little while. After that, he must be released. It's a thousand years purposefully a thousand years of utopia and people are still not satisfied and will follow Satan afterwards until once for all Satan will be defeated. And this time he doesn't go into the bottomless pit. He goes into Gehenna, the real hell. And that's coming up in our study of Revelation. So as we look at the outline, we see Satan retired. We also see saints reigning in verses 4 to 6. And this is very exciting when we look at this together. Saints reigning. John saw some more things. Look at verse 4. John saw thrones. And seated on the thrones were those who had been given authority to judge. This is during the millennial period. Jesus is going to be the one who is in charge, but he is delegating to others the ability to judge or the privilege of doing that. Who were these others? I believe that this is a large group. One group would be Old Testament saints. Let me quote from Daniel chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. We won't be able to go there that quickly. But in Daniel chapter 7 verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And then a few verses later, Daniel seven twenty seven, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. The Old Testament saints, to some degree or another, will be reigning, will be a part of that kingdom and then that everlasting kingdom. I believe the church saints are also going to be there. Do you know who that includes? That includes everybody in this room who's received the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Paul's making the point there. You ought to be able to solve problems in the church without people having to go to court. And one of the arguments that he's using is that one day you people, you Corinthians, you saints, along with all the other saints, are going to be judging the earth. So you better be able to do a little bit of it right now. That's the point that he's making. But in the middle of that comes the church saints being a part of those who are on those thrones in verse 4. The apostles in Matthew chapter. 19 verses 27 and 28. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me also will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then in the immediate context, the martyrs coming out of the tribulation, those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God, second part of verse 4 here in chapter 20. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The mark of the beast on the hand or in the forehead. My wife and I were watching the news this week and it came on again, this company is imprinting chips in people's hands, and they thought it was such a great thing because it is so convenient. You hear this all the time now. But what was sobering was that they didn't even think that this was something having to do with Scripture. They pointed out a couple of other areas that this is similar to, but no Scripture. They don't even have the Bible in their mind. I would think they would say, and... The Bible beaters are saying this is more of the signs of the times that they talk about. But we have a situation here where we have a lot of different people who are going to be governing. The government will be a theocracy with the Lord Jesus as king. He will literally sit on the throne of David and rule the world. The perfect government. People have been promising it for a long time, debating it. Philosophers have philosophized all about what the perfect government would be. But do you understand what this means? The implications for this? A theocracy. Jesus ruling. Here's the good part of that, in addition to many others. There will be no elections, no campaigns, no campaign posters left on telephone poles, no political preference polls, no debates. Hundreds of verses describe this. P.T. Barnum, you remember P.T. Barnum, the circus, great showman, delighted in showing visiting ministers an exhibit he called the Happy Family. He had lions, tigers, and panthers squatted around a lamb without even licking their lips. His press agent, a man by the name of Dexter Fellows, reported a conversation Barnum once had with one of the ministers that was there visiting. Barnum had been asked if the animals ever gave him any trouble. His answer, apart from replenishing the Lamb now and then, they get along very well together. That is natural. What Isaiah 11 and many portions of Scripture tell us is supernatural. This time is extraordinary. All the believers of all time are present now. The gang's all here all of them are in stages as part of the first resurrection that is mentioned here in the Scriptures. If you look at verse 5, the second resurrection is implied, and really some of the translations will put in parentheses the beginning of verse 5. Remember at the end of verse 4 it says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That would be a second resurrection. And then after that, it says this is the first resurrection, referring back to verse four. And the reason we know that is because verse six says blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So there will be two of them according to time periods. The first one will be all of those who are believers in the Lord Jesus. So verse six, describing those involved in the first resurrection And then you'll notice the reference to the second death having no power over them. The second death is separation from God for all of eternity, which is a reality. Let me ask you this question. How many deaths will you die? One physically? Or will there be a second one, which is... The second death referred to here, all of eternity separated from God. That's the second death. How many deaths will you die? Well, it depends on how many times you'll be born. You know the old moniker, born once, die twice. You're only born physically, you're going to die twice, physically and spiritually. But born twice, die once. Born physically and then born again, reborn, born from anew, only die once, only physically, unless the rapture occurs and then we don't even have to worry about that one. Will you be in the first resurrection or the second one? First resurrection here, which is the one that says blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's for believers. That second one, chronologically, that second one is one that we don't want to be a part of. Beginning of verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So which one will you be in? Final question. Will you rule and judge with Jesus or be a no-show during the millennium? Do you understand what I'm asking there? Will you rule and reign with Jesus or will you be a no-show during the millennium? Will you not be ruling and reigning then? All the answers to these questions must be decided on this side of death now Is the time later, maybe too late? My prayer, and I know the prayer of many in here, is that everyone in here will have been born twice, once physically, once spiritually. And if you're not, and for all of the rest of us, this message we need to be telling people all the time, it is going to be horror one day for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. We wouldn't want to wish our worst enemy the things that are going to happen. The remedy is clear. The contrast is great because God in His love doesn't want anybody to choose that direction. Why would anybody in his right mind reject the Lord Jesus in light of what we see in the book of Revelation? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for the sobering truth And thank you for the excitement of the reality that is here. Thank you that as we see what's going to happen through the pages of your word, that it will happen. And it will happen the way that you've said it will. May we be ready. That old song when I was a kid, I wish we'd all been ready. That's our prayer, that everyone here is ready if Jesus comes back today. So we thank you for this now in his name. Amen.